We're still calculating the mortality rate at this time. Uh, Dr. Cheever, are you concerned that the CDC faces a credibility issue here after the perceived overreaction to H1N1? I'd rather the news story be that we overreacted and that many people lost their lives because we didn't do enough. That's why we're here today. It's also why the World Health Organization is sending an epidemiologist to Hong Kong. It's hard to know what it is without knowing where it came from, so our first job with these things is always to find ground zero, figure out how it jumped into the population to begin with. We do know that a patient in Minnesota traveled to that part of the world. hearing from Beijing is that the outbreak is contained to the chrysanthemum complex in Hong Kong. Two deaths and ten suspected cases. same protocols established for SARS. They're quarantining the complex and screening for symptoms. Kowloon is the most densely populated area in the world, and Hong Kong is a harbor. It's going to spread. Hong Kong is sending us blood samples. We're also looking at samples from London. Two clusters, one at a hotel, the other at a health club. Five dead, encephalitis. And there's the man on the bus in Tokyo. Three dead in that cluster. Any of them travel to China or London? We're checking. As of right now, the mortality rate is fluctuating between 25 and 30%, depending upon underlying medical conditions socioeconomic factors, nutrition, fresh water. With the new mutation, we are predicting an r naught of no less than four. And without a vaccine, we can anticipate that approximately one in 12 people on the planet will contract the disease. So just imagine, what if a deadly virus were to break out? that infected people worldwide, starting with just one case of sickness, one city. Imagine after less than 100 days, literally millions of people get infected with this unknown, this deadly illness. They don't know what it is. They've never seen it before. They hardly even recognize the symptoms. And what if it was finally determined by doctors that everyone was going to get the virus, nobody would be immune, and unless they find a cure, everybody will die from this virus. Now, you may say, well, that's, that's Hollywood. Well, not really. Because in actuality, there is such a virus that exists. And as a matter of fact, it's infected the human race from the beginning of time. And it has been the single source of death for every person that's ever been born on this planet. 
Now, if you don't believe that is true, the evidence is found in a question I'm going to ask you right now. Here's the question. Do you believe that people are basically good? Now, if you answered the question, well, yes, I believe the average person is basically good. I believe people are born basically good. Then I would say you're in the vast majority of how most people would answer that question. And yet, there was a man named Paul who used to be a Jew, and he met Jesus and became a Christian, and he became the most prolific writer of the New Testament, and he strongly would beg to differ. And as it turns out, so would the Bible. Because this man (coughs) named Paul, who at one time thought he was a good guy, great Jew, Pharisee, very religious, thought he knew God better than anybody, this man came to finally believe that people are not generally good, people are generally bad. Basically, we're not naturally good people who just occasionally do bad things or occasionally say bad things or occasionally think bad things. We're naturally bad people who have to work at and try hard to do and to say and think good things. Now, if you don't believe that, just think about this one thing. Let me just ask you a question. Or let me just make a statement. If you think about it, we don't have to try to do bad things. We have to try not to do bad things. Now, I'll give you just one example. Let's take, uh, let's take lust. <clears throat> if you're a normal, healthy, red-blooded male or female, which is true, do you really have to work hard and try to lust after a good-looking woman? I mean, do you really have to break a sweat to lust after a good-looking guy? Or do you have to try not to? All right, give, give me another example. Let's take our form of government. We have three branches. Let's see how well you remember your civics. We have three branches. What are those three branches? Executive, legislative, judicial. All right? So we've got three branches of government. Now, do you think our founding fathers just kind of willy-nilly came up with this idea of a three-pronged government? No, they didn't do that. Do you know why they came up with this idea of a three-pronged government? If you've got the executive branch over here, the legislative branch over here, judicial branch over here, they said, we need that. There's a famous phrase you'll remember. We need that for checks and balances. Well, now, wait a minute. Why, Why do we need checks and balances? Why do they think we needed that? Well, James Madison, who was the chief architect of the Constitution, he put it this way. He said, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed. Boy, is that ever true, right? You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. That's ever true. A dependence on the people is no doubt the primary control on the government. But experience has taught mankind the necessity, I love this phrase, of auxiliary precautions. Um, I love that phrase. Why, why do you need auxiliary precautions? Because James Madison was right. People are not angels. 
Okay, your little grandson Throckmorton that you think's perfect, you may think he's an angel now, give him time. People are not angels. And the truth of the matter is, we are not naturally good, we are naturally bad. As someone put it, we're not good people who occasionally do bad things, we are bad people who occasionally do good things. And that's why we need grace. We're in a series that we're calling Real Grace. It's coming right out of the book of Romans. And what we've been saying is Romans kind of looks like a movie. And, and just like it reads like a book, it looks like a movie. It's got everything you'd want in a movie. You've got a director. His name is Paul. You've got a setting. That's the world. You've got a supporting cast. That's you and me. And we're actually in the movie because what the book of Romans is all about is how does God relate to us? And the movie is all about what grace is, how grace works, and why grace is so amazing. Now, to give you a quick review, the movie begins in a spectacular way. It shows how God created this universe in order to show us that he's up there, that he's out there, and reveal to us uh, who he is and have a relationship with us. But rather than accept God, we rejected God. Rather than live for God, we live for ourselves. So it shows the world as it really is, right? We've all sinned. We're all greedy. We're all selfish. We're all prideful. We all have flaws. Nobody's perfect. We're all in the same boat. Now, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You're not a perfect person. You're not married to a perfect person. You don't know a perfect person. You've never met a perfect person, and you never will. We all know that. The question is why? Why are we all flawed? Why, do well, why is it that we all do wrong? Think about the billions and billions and billions of people that have already come and gone on this planet. Why can't just one person break the mold? Why can't just one person come along and get it right all the time? Now, let me just go ahead. I know what you're saying, and you're right. If you're a Christian, you're saying, well, one person did. Right, Jesus. Jesus is the only human being who's ever gone through this entire life unscathed and unmarked by sin and moral failure, okay? Let's put Jesus aside. The question I'm asking is, why can't somebody else do what he did? Of all the billions of people, why can't just one single person be perfect? Why isn't anybody perfect and why can't we be perfect? Or to put it real bluntly, what's wrong with everybody? Why can't my beautiful, precious grandchildren, why can't they just be perfect? You know, I understand about your grandchildren, but what about mine? <laughs> why, why, why can't my grandchildren be absolutely perfect? Because when it comes to being perfect, it looks like that we are all born losers. And as a matter of fact, we are. Jason told you a moment ago, if you have an iPad or a smartphone or a Bible, whatever it is you might use, I want you to turn to the book of Romans, the fifth chapter. Now, if you don't know where Romans is, it's easy to find. You go to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. It's the sixth book in the New Testament. Now, both our problem and our solution that we're dealing with, Paul says, lies in two lead actors. And there's one guiding plot line. He said, okay, the two leading actors in this drama that we're in is Adam and Jesus. And the plot line is grace. So what we're going to do is we're going to begin with the problem. 
We're going to talk about why are we all born losers? Why can't somebody get it right all the time? Why is it that we do things we know we shouldn't do and we don't do things we know that we should do? Well, here's what Paul says. You ready? Now, listen, going to get deep again, so stay with me. He says, first of all, we are all sinfully infected by Adam. We're all sinfully infected by Adam. Now, whenever you've got a problem, I was taught this in school. When I, when I majored in accounting, uh, one of the things my professor used to teach us was, look, when you've got a problem, there's two things you've got to do or you can't solve the problem. That is, number one, what is the problem? You've got to discern that. And then number two, what caused the problem? All right, now, what is the problem? Well, we all know what the problem is. And if you don't know what it is and want to know what it is, just tonight at 11 o'clock on your television, just turn on the news. And you'll find out what the problem is. Or just look outside. Just as you go home, just look outside. We, we, know, we, we, you know, we can call it anything we want to. Errors, mistakes, misjudgments. The Bible calls it sin. Sin is the problem. Sin is what's wrong with all of us. The world is full of sinners. But once again, you say, you still haven't told me anything. I don't know. The question is, why? And Paul gives us the answer in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Now, stay with me because this is kind of a little bit of a deep argument here. Paul says, look, we all know what the two greatest problems in the world are, sin and death. That's the two great problems we all face. We got sin, we've got death. We've got terrorism, we've got crime, we've got murder, we've got rape, we've got thievery, we've got stealing, and then we've got death. We've got cancer, we've got heart attacks, we've got diabetes, we've got all kinds of sicknesses. So we're all the time dealing with sin and death. So he says, okay, let's take this one at a time. How did sin get into the world? He says, well, it got into the world through Adam. Sin entered the world through one man. Adam is the one man Paul's referring to here. He's the first human. He committed the first sin. And Adam was the door through which sin entered the world. But Paul says there's a greater problem. When Adam sinned, Pandora's box was then opened because just as Paul was the door through which sin entered the world, sin was the door through which death entered the world. Now, the death that Paul is referring to here is not just physical death, that is the separation of the soul from the body. It's also spiritual death, the separation of the soul from God. But what he's saying is sin is the cause of both. When Adam sinned, death came into the world. So Adam's the door, sin comes in. Sin's the door, death comes in. Now, Adam did eventually die. And we know something else. Every person since then has died. We all die. Why do we all die? Because according to Paul, we all, now look at this phrase, we all sinned. That's not sin, S-I-N, it's sin. It's not present tense, it is past tense. Now what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, look, it's true that we all sin, we sin practically every day, but why do we sin? He says because, now watch this, in Adam, we all sinned. We all sinned in Adam. In other words, when Adam sinned, we sinned. Adam's sin infected the entire human race. Paul says, you know what's wrong with us? We're just naturally born sinners. 
We're just born that way. It's just in our genes. In other words, we are not sinners because we sin. That's what most people think. Well, I'm a sinner because I sin. No, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Adam's sin infected all of us. In other words, Paul said, you need to understand something about sin. Sin's not just what you do. Sin's what you are. Sin flows through your veins. Sin is a part of your genetic makeup. You were born that way. <clears throat> you may not know this, but the very first reading textbook that was ever designed for education in the American colonies was called the New England Primer. It became the most successful educational textbook published in 18th century America, and it was the foundation for all schooling of all children before around the early 1990s. So would you like to know what the first line ever printed in North America was? Do you know what the first line ever printed in any book in North America was? You ready for this? It was this line. In Adam's fall, we send all. In Adam's fall, we send all. Can you imagine teaching that to our kids today? But that's what they learned. 200, 300, 250 years ago, they were taught in Adam's fall, we sin all. In other words, the very first lesson everybody wanted their kids to learn was this. We've got a problem. We all carry this sin virus and we got it from Adam. It's been passed down from Adam through every generation. Now, some of you go, but I just don't, I don't understand that. I don't even think that's right. Well, wait a minute. That principle really shouldn't surprise you. Because we see, we see generational, generational connectedness all the time. You want an example? Crack babies. Crack babies are born addicted to cocaine. Why are they born addicted to cocaine? They've never taken cocaine, no, but their mother were users. Or maybe you've known someone that had sickle cell anemia or cystic fibrosis. You know what the problem is? Many times, those are generationally connected. Their mothers or their fathers or a grandfather or a grandmother or an uncle or an aunt, they had the same disease. So we see there are certain diseases that we know are passed down from generation to generation. We now know that many times child abusers beget child abusers and alcoholics beget alcoholics. Oh, look, look at your own kids. Let's just be honest. Do you ever see any of your flaws in your own kids? It's really frustrating, isn't it, right? And I mean, how many, times, how many times have you said to your kid, don't act that way? Or how about this one? You'll go, don't raise your voice, right? I mean, you go, golly, Pete, man, they're, they're repeating the same thing that I do. Listen, in all my years of being a pastor, I have never had a parent come to me with this problem. I've never had a parent come to me and say, pastor, you've got to help me with my children. What's wrong with your children? They're perfect. I can't get them to do one bad thing. All they do all the time is just good stuff. I've never had anybody come to me like that. I've never had to come and say, can you please help me make my kids do bad? And to prove his point, now watch what Paul does. To prove his point, Paul interrupts himself in the next two verses. Look what he says in verse 13. He said, now to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. What he's talking about is, Adam comes, Adam is created, then you've got this period of time, and there was no law. God had not given the Ten Commandments, God had not given his law. But, he goes on to say, 
Sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. So in other words, he's saying that in that period of time between Adam and Moses, when God gave the law, even though people did wrong, God didn't really charge it against them because there was no law that was telling them, you know, what was right and what was wrong. But he says, but nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Now, what's Paul doing here? What's he dealing with? He, he Evidently, somebody may have, may have raised this question. They're saying, wait a minute. We get it. We understand. So Adam sinned, and when Adam sinned, Adam died because Adam sinned. Okay, right. But now, what about all those people that came along after Adam? Adam broke a command of God. God told him not to do something. He did it, so God said, okay, you're going to die. But nobody else broke a commandment because there was no commandment to break. Right. But Paul says, well, wait a minute. But they died. There was no law, therefore sin was not held against them. But you just said sin is the cause of death. And because of that, people died. So first of all, how can people sin if there's no law to break? And Paul said, well, in reality, they really didn't. God didn't charge it against them. And so, by the way, here Paul makes a very crucial point. He says, look, the presence of a law can reveal sin. But the absence of a law does not necessarily remove sin. You say, okay, explain that to me. All right, remember, between Adam and Moses, there was no law and there was no commandment. Adam broke a specific commandment of God. That was his sin. God held him accountable. But we just read, but wait a minute. Where there is no law, there is no accountability. Right. So even though there was no law and sin was not charged against those who did no wrong, he says, but wait a minute. Eve died, of course, she broke the command, but what, what, about, what about Cain? What about, I mean, we know how Abel died, but, you know, uh, uh, what about their sons? What about their grandchildren? What about all the people? What about all these people that lived all those years between the giving of the law and Adam's sin? There was no commandment to break, but if sin is the cause of death, the question is, then whose sin caused everybody else to die? And Paul says there can only be one answer to that. Everyone died because in Adam, everyone sinned. Adam sinfully infected and defected the entire human race. The reason why everyone on this planet are inherently sinners, the reason why we're all inherently sinners is because we have all inherited a sinful nature. So do you know why ultimately, you know why we die? You say, well, we die because we sin. No, we don't die because we sin. We die because when Adam sinned, we all sin. So we were all born with this sin virus. It has infected everyone. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Now, you say, boy, that is so discouraging and so disheartening. So what you're saying is, there really isn't any hope for anybody. Oh, no, no, no. That's where grace comes in. That's where Jesus comes in. Because take heart. Because Paul goes on to say, now, here's what happened. It is true that we are sinfully infected by Adam. But what is also true is we are spiritually corrected by Jesus. Sinfully infected, but spiritually corrected. Now, here's the good news. He says, look, the good news is this. The first Adam does not have to have the final say in who you are. The first Adam does not have to have the final say of how you live. 
The first Adam does not have to have the does not have to have the final say in what you're going to be. So he goes on to say this in verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. I'll explain that in a moment. For if the many died, that's all of us, by the trespass of the one man, that is Adam, how much more did God's, say that word with me, keep running into it, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Now, let me just make this real easy. I'm going to put this whole paragraph in one simple sentence. Paul said, what Adam did to you, Jesus has undone for you. What Adam did to you, Jesus has undone for you. Now, the gift that Paul was talking about up there is the gift of Jesus dying for us. So Adam's sin brought guilt. Jesus' death brought grace. Adam's sin ruined us. Jesus' death redeemed us. Adam's sin condemned us to eternal death. Jesus' death gives us eternal life. And Paul wants us to understand something. He says, look now, this is not just a one-to-one comparison. Because don't, don't miss this. He said, there's no way what the first Adam did to us can, can be compared to what the second Adam did for us. So he goes on to say this in verse 16. Nor can the gift of God be compared to the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Now here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, Adam's sin brought, put us all under the condemnation of God's judgment, all of us. But the death of Jesus puts us puts us under the justification of God's grace. Because of Adam, we are all deemed guilty and we're all doomed to eternal death. But because of Jesus, we can be declared not guilty and delivered to eternal life. And Paul continues to emphasize, look, even though there's some comparison between Adam and Jesus, there is a great difference between them as well. So he says this in verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, you know what that means now, death reigned through that one man, that is everybody died because we all sinned in Adam, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of, what's that word? Grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, I don't want you to miss this. This, this is getting, I know it's getting deeper, and I know it's getting higher, but you can't miss what he just said. He said, look, it's not just that Adam condemned you to die, and Jesus commutes your death sentence. It's not just that Adam puts you in jail, and Jesus lets you out of the cell. He said, it's more than that. We're not just survivors. He said, what happened was, where once death reigned over us and was our king, we are now the kings. Death no longer rules over us. We rule over death. Death no longer has the final say in my life. Death is now our, our, now our slave. So in other words, because of Adam, even though we're born slaves to sin, through Jesus, he didn't just redeem us. We talked about that last week. He didn't just redeem us from being slaves to sin. He says, we've been elevated to a throne of grace to reign with Christ. So here's the point, and this is why I want you to stay with me. 
Here's, it's not just that Jesus saw us and here we are, we're, all, we're handcuffed by sin and, and we're going to die. It's not that Jesus just took this key called grace and he unlocked the shackles of sin and death that enslaved us and imprisoned us and just kind of set us free. Paul said, no, he did more than that. He didn't just take us from being slaves. He made us rulers. He didn't just set a pauper free. He made that pauper a king. Yes, we've all been sinfully infected by Adam. And we, but we've been more than spiritually corrected by Jesus. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. Don't ever think it's kind of a one-to-one deal here because we have gained far more in Jesus than we ever lost in Adam. So let me, I'll give you an analogy. You're driving through a town and uh, you're speeding and the police officer pulls you over and you beg the police officer not to give you a ticket. So he decides not to give you a ticket. He lets you go. Well, that would just be mercy. And that's what a lot of people think about Jesus. Well, you know, because of Adam, I've been caught in my sin. But Jesus said, look, I'll just tear up the ticket. Paul says, oh, no, no, it's better than that. <clears throat> Paul says, here's what happened. You drive through the city. You get pulled over. And you're speeding. Now, if the officer just tore up the ticket, that would be mercy. God didn't deal with us primarily according to mercy. He deals with us according to grace. So here's what happens. You drive through the city. You get pulled over for speeding. The officer says you were speeding. You beg the officer not to give you a ticket. The officer says, no, I've got to because justice has to be done. So the officer writes you out a ticket. But then the officer pays the fine. The officer gets the judge to take the ticket off your record and wipe the slate clean and then makes you the mayor of the city. Paul said, now that's what happens. That's what happens when we are spiritually corrected by Jesus. You say, but how in the world does that come about? Because this is what, now listen to what Paul says. Paul says, look, you understand we're all sinfully infected by Adam. We're all born with Adam. When Adam sinned, we sinned. We die because we sinned in Adam. I got that. You understand that we have been spiritually corrected by Jesus. You understand Jesus undid for us what Paul did to us, but he didn't just undo it. He didn't just set us free. He didn't just say, okay, you're on your own. He said, I'm not only going to set you free, I'm going to make you a king. I'm going to make you royalty. You're going to reign with me. And you go, how in the world does that work? And here's how. Because we are supremely affected by grace. We're sinfully infected by Adam, spiritually corrected by Jesus, because we've been supremely affected by grace. Now, Paul evidently knows what I know. He said, boy, this is deep. I know this is deep. I know this is not, you know, Jesus wept. I know this is not John 3, 16. I know this is not Mary had a little lamb and he was born of a virgin. I, I, I get all that. I know this is deep. So, he, so Paul says, look, to make sure you don't miss the major point I'm trying to make, let me kind of summarize it. So he does this in verse 18. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. Let me stop right there. So how many of you now understand what Paul said in that sentence? How many of you get it? Everybody got it? Okay, I, yeah, I get that, okay. Adam sinned. But it condemned all of us because when Adam sinned, we sinned. Okay, everybody got that? So also, one righteous act, that is Jesus dying on the cross and coming back from the grave, one righteous act resulted in justification at life for all people. That is, all people who put their faith and trust in him. For, just as through the disobedience of the one man, who's the one man? 
Adam, all right? So just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many, that is all of us who place our faith in Christ, are, 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 are all of us who are born, the many, that's all of us, were made sinners, right? We were sinners. We were born that way. So all through, through the obedience of the one man, who's the one man? Jesus. Through the obedience of the one man dying on a cross, many who place their faith in Jesus will be made righteous. Now, here's what Paul says. Make sure you got it. Paul says, Adam's disobedience resulted in the condemnation of everybody. Jesus' obedience resulted in the justification of all people who put their faith in Jesus. So what Adam did to us, Jesus undid for us. Now, let me just stop. This works both ways, and now you're going to understand something, I hope, now from what we're going to talk about next week. So I'm going to give you a little sneak preview. You sit there and you say, but I wasn't with Adam when he sinned. No, you weren't with Adam when he sinned, but you were in Adam when he sinned. So when Adam sinned, we all sinned, and we're all made sinners, okay? We were not with Jesus when he died. But when I place my faith and trust in Jesus, and I am now in Jesus, and I place my faith in Jesus, then when he died, I died. And I am made righteous. Now, so far, Paul's readers, remember he's writing to, to mainly Jewish Christians. So far, everybody's kind of tracking with Paul. But then he said something. That would be a shock to the Jewish system he used to teach. And he said something that I hope is going to get some attention of some people in this room. For some people in our Mill Creek campus. For people that are watching this on television. For people that are watching this right now on computer. It was a tremor. It was an earthquake when he said this. Now watch this. Verse 20. The law, God's commandments, the law was brought in so that the trespass might be eliminated. That's not what he said. He says the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Now listen to what Paul said. Jewish people, and a lot of people today, Jewish people thought that God gave the law and God gave his commandments to show us how to be right with God. They thought, I know why God gave the law. I got to keep the law. And if I keep the law, I'll be right with God. So God gave the law and God his commandments to show us how to be right with God by keeping his commandments. And they thought, and many people today think, their human goodness could cancel out Adam's badness. Paul comes along and he says, no, you got it all wrong. The law does not decrease sin and make us righteous. It actually increases sin and makes us more unrighteous. The law actually doesn't really prevent sin. It actually provokes sin. Now, I'm going to give you an everyday example, and you'll say, okay, I, you're right. I get that. Look at your, let's take your children again. You learn early on with young children that one of the best ways to get your children to do something is what? Tell them they can't do it, right? Use reverse psychology. You want your child, you tell them, you can't do this. We've all played the parent-child game. We all have. Everybody does. What do we do? 
We lay down the law to our kids, and what do they do? They find a way to break the law. Why? Because there's one thing kids don't like, and there's one thing we don't like. There's one thing we never grow out of. You've never grown out of it. I've never grown out of it. Let's just be honest. We don't like to be told what to do. We don't like to be told what we can do. We don't like to be told where we can do it, when we can do it, and the way we can do it. And you know what happens? It happens, even, and I'm, I'm, look, I'm, I'm getting up in age. I'm telling you, still true for me. There's still a part of me, when you tell me I can't do something, it increases my desire to do it. Now, I'm going to give you another practical example. Let's take the speed limit. If you're like me, okay, if you're like me, this is, this is confession time. So don't look at me like you're some kind of holy people right now. If you're like me, no matter where you go, no matter what the speed limit is, if you're like me, here's what you do. You set your speedometer around 10, 9 or 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. And why do you do that? Because you've learned police won't bother you. They'll leave you alone. They're not even going to fool with you, right? So let me give you an illustration. I want you to imagine that the speed limit is, 65 miles, is, is, is 55 miles per hour. You've always gone 65 miles per hour. And everybody knows you go 65 miles per hour. Your next door neighbor is the cop that sits in that little place under the bridge watching to catch people. And you wave at him every time you go by to work. And he knows you're going 10 miles an hour. He doesn't fool with you. So everybody knows you go over the speed limit. The government knows it. So the government comes back and the government says, look, we get it. We realize it. You're not fooling anybody. We realize all of you are doing 65 miles an hour. We want you to be good citizens. We want you to obey the law. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to raise the speed limit to 65 miles an hour. Now, what do you do? Do you go, super cool. Now I get to be a law-abiding citizen. No, that's not what you do. What do you do? Don't sit there and look holy at me. What do you do? You raise it up to 75, right? So what did the law do? Did the law motivate you to obey it? Nope. It just increased your desire to break it. Is the light coming on? Paul said, look, you're, some of you out there are saying, I know the only way I know to get to heaven is just try to keep his commandments. I've heard that a million times. Just try to keep the commandments. Maybe, I, maybe, you know, maybe I'll get lucky. Maybe I'll hit the spiritual lottery and I'll get right with God. Paul says, look, the law was never given to show that you could be right with God by keeping it. The law was given to show that you'll never be right with God because you can't keep it. And most of the time, you don't even want to keep it. So forget that. You're a born loser. I'm a born loser. And Paul says, the only way overcoming being a born loser is not law it is grace real grace so watch this I get, I'm getting goosebumps right now I just love Romans I'm get, I, mean, I, I don't know if you're into this or not I'm into this okay now listen to what he says in verse 20 watch this listen to this but where sin increased Grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ 
our Lord. Now, you notice I underscored the word increased. You know, I notice I did that. I did that for a reason. Because even though the word is used twice, and even though it's translated the same way, this is where knowing Greek pays off, it's not the same word in the Greek language. There are actually two different Greek words that are used. The word here where it says where sin increased, that, that word literally simply means much or many, and it has the idea of getting of a numerical increase. Okay, that's what that verb means. It's, in other words, it's kind of the normal meaning of the word increase. The second word has a Greek prefix attached to it. And what that word means is super increased, overflowed, far more than enough, uber increase. Now, this passage that we just studied today, it uses the word grace five times. That's more than any other similar passage in the Bible. And so here's what Paul's been telling us this whole time, and hopefully now you'll get it. Here's what Paul's telling us. Here's the bad news. You've been sinfully infected by Adam. When he sinned, you sinned. Because you sinned in him, you die, we die, we all die, because we're all sinners. We do not sin, we do not, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. He says, that's the bad news. He said, here is the good news. Adam's sin is no match for Jesus' death. What Adam did in the Garden of Eden is no match for what Jesus did on the cross. Our sin is no match for God's grace. The dam of our sin can never stop the flood of God's grace. Paul says, hey, here's the bad news. Sin's flowing everywhere. Here's the good news. Grace is overflowing everywhere. He says, sin is raining everywhere, but grace is flooding everywhere. And here's the point. When sin meets grace, Sin always loses and grace always wins. That's right. You can clap. When sin meets grace, sin always loses and grace always wins. So now we're going to bring this to a close. Now we're going to make this applicable to you. Here's, here's, you say, okay, how, do I, how does this apply to my life? Okay, real easy. Here's the bottom line. Here's the question that I want to ask you. We're all born losers in Adam but Paul just said, we can all be born again winners in Jesus. So here's the question now I want every one of you to ask yourself right now. You ready? Where are you? What? Where are you? So I'm here. sitting right here in front of you. That's not what I mean. I'm not asking you where you are physically. I'm asking you, where are you spiritually? When you walk out the door, you get in your car, and you drive home, you go through your neighborhood, or you get up in the morning, and you drive downtown or where it is, and you go to work, I want you to remember this. Every person you pass, every person you meet, every person you speak to, every person you have a conversation with, every single person on planet Earth is in one of two places. They're either in Adam or they're in Christ. They're either in Adam or they're in Christ. Now, we're all born in Adam. We have to be born again to be in Jesus. So, you're either under law 
or you're under what? Grace. So I close with this. You remember the little poem, Humpty Dumpty? Remember that poem? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Well, many years ago, Adam had the greatest fall of all. And because of Adam's fall, he made every one of us Humpty Dumpties. And God says, the law will never put you back together. Religion will never put you back together. Your good works will never put you back together. Your best effort will never put you together. Your, all the money that you give will never put you back together. So I like this version of the poem much better. Jesus Christ came to our wall, and Jesus Christ died for our fall. He killed Queen Death, and he crushed King Sin, and through grace, he put us together again. We're all born losers, but through God's grace and our faith in Jesus, we don't have to stay that way. Let's pray together.